Thanks for tuning in to the Follow Church weekly message. Our hope and prayer is that you will find this message uplifting and challenging as we seek to follow Jesus in our community for His glory. Apostle Paul refers himself as the chief of sinners, and in Romans 7, he says, I don't really understand myself. I don't understand myself because the things I want to do what is right, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. What he's saying is that even though he's put his faith in Jesus as his Lord and Saviour, he still struggles with sin daily, and I think each of us can relate to that as well. In our sinful, fallen world, we still struggle as sinful people. But in Christ, we have what theologians call positional righteousness. And so our position before God is that we are righteous. But the reality of our life is that we struggle between the the work of the Spirit in our lives and and the pull of our earthly nature. And so in this life, we keep struggling with sin. The Bible calls that sanctification. And through the work of the Holy Spirit, He works in our hearts to continually transform us so that we will become more and more like Christ. And that's a wonderful thing. Verse 17 says, We see a righteousness from God has been revealed. But the end of the chapter continues today on a very different note. And so the note takers can write this down. Point number two, the wrath of God is also being revealed from heaven. Look at verse 18. It says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. I wonder if you know this morning, did you know that anger is not always sin? There are times when anger is actually righteous. Things happen in life and it's actually righteous to be angry in those moments. I can remember a moment like this for myself. Uh, 2010, grand final. (laughs) St Kilda Collingwood. We were getting beaten at half time. We came right back, played a great second half, hit the front. It drew back level. We had all the momentum and for the last minute or so, we were just waiting and hoping and praying that St Kilda would score one more point. And then I remember looking at the screen with 17 seconds left and I knew we weren't going to be able to score. I knew we were going to have to come back the following week and do this all again, even though we had the momentum. And at that moment, I felt a righteous anger burn up on the inside of me because uh, we've got one premiership in 140 years. So I'm angry about that and I think God would be as well. And so I was righteously angry. Okay, maybe that's not a good example. Maybe it wasn't so righteous. Maybe it was unrighteous anger, but it was anger of some type, that's for sure. But there will be times in life when we are righteously angry. Anger is the appropriate response to what is happening. I am angry, righteously angry about sex slavery. I'm angry about poverty. I'm angry about injustice. I'm angry when the devil has his way in our marriages and in our families and in our kids. I'm angry that this community is full of people that don't know Jesus and are heading towards eternity separated from God. When I consider those things, there's a righteous anger that drives us to a holy response to stand up and do something about the injustice and evil in our world, and that's a wonderful thing. God calls us to be people that stand up for the truth, that turn over the injustice and be people that bring justice and love and peace and mercy to a world that desperately needs it. And so what is the wrath of God? The wrath of God is the righteous anger of God against sin, rebellion and injustice in the world that he created. A lot of people struggle to understand how God can be love 
And yet God can still be a God of wrath. People think that love and wrath are opposites, but they're actually not. In fact, wrath, God's righteous anger, actually flows from his perfect love because part of God's love is justice. We understand this in our society, don't we? A couple of weeks ago, we all heard the story of Eurydice Dixon, a young 22-year-old girl who was brutally raped and murdered on her way home through a park, walking through a park in Carlton. When we heard that news, we as a society responded to that with absolute disgust and outrage as we should. We are righteously angry that a 19-year-old man could attack and end the life of an innocent young woman innocently walking home through a park. And so a couple of days later, when that young man was found and arrested, not only was there relief, but there was a sense of joy for many people. And why was there joy? Because people would say, that's justice. He's going to pay the penalty for what he's done. That is the right thing to happen. Now, if that 19-year-old, just imagine for a second, just imagine he was never, ever caught. Or even worse, imagine he was released on bail next week and was free to roam the streets. This is not really a hypothetical, is it? sort of thing happens all the time. But imagine he was uh, free to roam the streets. I think there would be uproar again. People would say, that's unjust. That's unloving. There is a problem with our justice system, and I think that's absolutely true. What would we think about that? The truth is there are many people who commit awful crimes against innocent victims, and they never get caught, and in their eyes, they've gotten away with it. So imagine this 19-year-old. Imagine he was never caught. Imagine if he lived the rest of his life happy and healthy, died peacefully in his sleep at the age of 110. How would we feel about that? We would feel that's unjust. We would feel that's unfair. We would feel sad for the family and I think righteously angry that they never got justice. And there are many people that do get away with their crimes in this life. And so let me ask you a question this morning. If God is good... And yet he turns a blind eye to those things. If he leaves those things unpunished, how could he possibly be a God of love? You see, God guarantees that justice will be done. If not in this life, certainly on judgment day. You see, we often try to take justice into our own hands, but that's not our job. In Romans chapter 12, Paul says, Don't repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. And if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, Live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for what? For God's wrath. As it is written, it's mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. You see, God's wrath is his love in action against sin and injustice. God's wrath is his love in action against sin and injustice. And so God's wrath is revealed against those things. And one day all of us will stand before a righteous, holy God and give account for our lives. And on that moment, none of us will be declared righteous in our own strength. This is why it's not our job to repay evil for evil, because we all sin. None of us are righteous, not even one. And so the only way we could ever be declared righteous and innocent of the things we've done in our lives on that day is by putting our faith in Jesus and accepting the sacrifice he paid for us. Otherwise, the reality of our future is that we will face the consequences of our lives and that is the action and activity of a just and loving God. The wrath of God, the new Bible commentary says, the wrath of God is not an emotional rage, but a steadfast and absolute opposition to all that is evil. 
The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. And so how do we know that God has made his truth plain to us? Well, Jesus has been revealed. The righteousness has been revealed from heaven. He came from heaven to earth. He lived amongst us. He died for us. He rose from the dead. He appeared to hundreds of people after his resurrection. He ascended to heaven and he's promised he's coming back for his people. So God has made that plain to us. Jesus, the truth, he says, I am the way, the truth and the life. Jesus, the truth has been revealed to us in his word, in the Bible. This is what theologians call special revelation. Special revelation is what God reveals to us about himself in scripture. And so this book is God's word to us. He reveals himself to us in the pages of this book. He shows us his character. He demonstrates how he's been working through human history. He shows us what he's like. And in the clearest way, he demonstrates his character through his son. Hebrews chapter 1 says, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. And so as we read about Jesus, the way that he loves people, the way that he serves, the man of compassion and integrity he was, the man who stands for the truth, a man who lays his life down for others. This shows us what God is like and we go, wow, this is who God is. This is what he is like. And so anybody who has access to the Bible, whether it's a hard copy like this, whether it's a mobile phone or Googling on the internet, and if you don't have a Bible, you can grab a Bible out of the aisle and take it home today. But anyone who has access to a Bible can never stand before God and say, I didn't know. And that's pretty much everyone in our society. And yet, what do most people do? They say, no thanks, and they suppress the truth. This is what the passage is saying. And when they stand in God's presence, they'll have no excuse for rejecting Jesus. You might think, well, that's fair enough. But what about people in other countries and cultures immersed in other religions? What about tribes who exist in deep, dark Africa and they've never heard the name of Jesus? What about them? Surely those people will have an excuse. Well, Paul goes on and he says, no. No one will have an excuse. Why? Because God has revealed himself even to them. The wrath of God has been revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. And so special revelation is truth revealed about God in Scripture. But general or natural revelation is God's truth revealed to us in creation. Even apart, entirely apart from special revelation through the gospel, which many people have never heard, God has made himself known. And he continues to do so by means of his general revelation in nature, history and conscience. You know, many people walk around all day and they look at creation around them. They're surrounded by the most stunning creation, a creation that is so big and vast that they say there are likely to be 100 billion planets in the Milky Way galaxy alone. And on top of that, there are said to be another 100 billion galaxies on top of that. And all of this is delicately held together. And even our own planet, Earth, if it tilted on its axis just a few degrees, the whole thing would explode. And yet something, or I think someone, holds this all together. 
And it's so big that it's hard for us to comprehend, maybe too much for us to take in on a Sunday morning. But even in our everyday lives, we're surrounded by God's stunning creation. As you look around, you look to the sky and Psalm 119 says that the skies, the heavens declare the glory of God. We look at the moon and the stars and the clouds and the sky and we think God is awesome. And then we look lower at the grass and the trees and the oceans and the waves and we say God is powerful. And we look at the creatures, big and small, the elephant, the giraffe, the possum, the bird, the ants, and we say God is interesting. We look at the birth of a precious child and we say God is brilliant in his design. And then we look on either side of us this morning at the person on our left or right created in the image of God and we go, wow, God is creative. (laughs) Never thought he'd create a nose that big. (laughs) He is that big. But he's a creative God and you were designed out of his creative is creativity, and it's a wonderful thing, unique, created in the image of God. Every person who's ever existed has the opportunity to see all these things. And yet so many suppress the truth, and they walk around in God's beautiful creation every day, and they go, there is no God. And then they say, how can you possibly believe that, that God created all of this? And I sort of think, well, my glass is not working. Just double check here. He's everywhere. Look around. He's everywhere. God's name is crying out through creation. How can you possibly say that all of this happened by an accident? We see God's intelligent design all the way around us. God has revealed himself to us in incredible ways. God has revealed himself through his stunning, mind-boggling creation so that nobody has an excuse to suppress the truth because God has made it plain to them. Verse 21, Paul goes on to highlight how people suppress the truth all around them. What they do is they merely substitute this glorious God for other things. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for things or images made to look like a mortal human being, like birds and animals and reptiles made of wood and stone. And so they substitute God, the awesome God, for this man-made junk. Verse 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. You see, we have the opportunity to know this wonderful God, this awesome God who created us and loves us And yet we choose so often to suppress the the majesty of who he is. We push him off to the side and we elevate other things above him, whether we've put our faith in Jesus or not. So for for, for some people, it's their relationships more important than God. For others, it's their beauty, their career, their family, their money, their sex, their possessions, all good things given to us by God, but none of them are ultimate things to put our hope in. Only Jesus is. He's where we find our true source of identity and purpose and security. In the rest of the passage, Paul goes on to highlight the sins of mankind that they have chosen instead of God. And if I was to summarize them all with an overarching word, it would be the word rebellion. Rebellion, according to the dictionary, is the action or process of resisting authority, control, or convention. If you're a school teacher here, 
and statistics would tell us that 87% of people that come to follow are school teachers. <laughs> and of those 87%, 96% of them work at Cairo. <laughs> and statistics also show that 99.3% of stats are made up on the spot. So you work out the truth and all that. But there are a lot of teachers here. And if you're a teacher, you know what rebellion looks like, don't you? You can probably picture right now that kid in your class. You ask everyone to do, the, do something, they all do one thing, but that one kid always pushes your buttons, always, he's always fiddling with something, he's always picking up his phone when he's not meant to, he's always fighting, he's always having a tantrum, he's always doing the wrong thing. That's what rebellion looks like. Maybe you're not a school teacher, but you've been in a supermarket and you've witnessed that kid that didn't get the chocolate bar. And they're on the ground, belting the floor and yelling and screaming and having a tantrum and thinking if they scream louder, then they'll get more chocolate and the opposite is true. Sadly, it's not always true. <laughs> Maybe it's in your family, you've got rebellious children who, you know, have walked away from the Lord over the years that have gone by, that do the wrong thing all the time, that always do the opposite of what they're told or what seems wise. And if you've experienced the pain of that, you'll have a tiny little glimpse of how God must feel as he looks at what he's created and he sees the mess that we've made of his very good creation. And God in his wisdom, intelligence and power created us to enjoy a relationship with him and he created in a way that we would be free of pain, suffering, evil, sin and death. And yet since the very first human beings, Adam and Eve, we thought, they thought that they would do better themselves. They would do better doing their own thing. We too have consistently rebelled against him, knowing that, thinking that we know better than the almighty God. And then we scratch our heads and we wonder why this world is such a giant mess. And it's a mess simply because of our sin. Paul highlights what sin looks like. And he goes through a whole bunch of different sins. He starts with sexual sin, a sin that's no greater than any other sin, but also of great importance to God. I think the mistake we've made as a, as a church throughout the years is that we've highlighted sexual sin as the ultimate sin. It's a serious sin, but it's not the ultimate sin. It's one of many sins, and they're all the same in God's eyes. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18 to 20, Paul says, flee from sexual immorality. The Greek literally means to turn and, and run in terror. Literally flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits are outside the body, but a sexually immoral person sins against their own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. In this passage, he deals with all sorts of sin. He starts with talking about homosexual activity. Now, I realise that this is a hot topic in our culture. It's a very sensitive topic in the world that we live in. And so let me just read you exactly what God's word says. Verse 26. Because of this, their rebellion, because they know better, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relationships for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relationships with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. What I want you to see in this situation and in all the sins listed in this passage is that the overarching theme is rebellion. God, in the very first book of the Bible, Designed marriage. He said that a man and a woman would leave their father and mother and they would become one flesh. And then he told them to go forth and multiply and fill the earth. Now, nobody can argue rationally that biologically, in our physical makeup, God has designed the man and woman to complement one another 
for children to be born. You can't multiply and fill the earth without the unique contributions of both a male and a female who have been designed by a wise creator to come together physically, sexually, and relationally. This is how God created sexuality. This is how he created man and woman to interact. And what we've done is we've gone, yeah, nah, nah. We'll do it. We know better than you. We'll do it our own way. It's not just in sexuality. He gives a whole list of sins, and the heart of each of them is rebellion. Look at verse 29. They've become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of others who practice them. We are a rebellious people. We've got to own that. We consistently rebel against the holy God and three times in this passage, verse 24, verse 26, and verse 28, it says that God gave them over to, in verse 24, the sinful desire of their hearts. In verse 26, to their shameful lusts. In verse 28, to their depraved mind. God gave them over. Now, what does that mean, to give someone over? Because it sounds kind of harsh, doesn't it? That God would just say, right, too bad, you're doomed. That sounds really harsh, and I don't think it's consistent with God's character throughout Scripture. Psalm 103 tells us that God is compassionate and gracious. He's quick to forgive. He is slow to anger, and he's abounding in love. That's our God. He's not the angry man in the sky. He's a God of compassion and love and grace and mercy. And so giving them over doesn't mean too bad you're doomed. That's not consistent with his character. But what it does mean is this. That if we consistently rebel against him, if we fail to repent and turn back to God, if we consistently and deliberately disobey his truth, there comes a time that he will hand us over and essentially say, have it your own way. And he will allow us to learn a lesson and pay the consequences for our actions. Now, some people learn their lesson, don't they? They learn their lesson, they repent quickly, they turn away from rebellion, they come back to God. But there's others that just seem to always have to learn the hard way. They choose to learn the hard way. They don't come back. And often they come back when they hit rock bottom, when they're completely lost, when they're broken, and in the blackness of life, they come back. I want to encourage you this morning, don't be that person. Don't be that person. Learn the lessons and turn to God now. God is righteously angry against the sin, evil, and injustice of not only the world, but of every human heart. Now, this all sounds really bleak, and I want to finish on a positive note this morning. Does that sound good? Sounds incredibly bleak. It sounds like a hopeless situation. It sounds like our world is a mess, and I think that's exactly, precisely the picture Paul's trying to paint. And so if you're writing notes, the third and final point is this, that God's grace shines brightly in the dark. When you go to the fanciest jewellery shops in the world looking for a diamond, you'll see that they get their best diamonds and they set them on a black background. And when the diamond sits on a black background, it pops, it shines, it sparkles. It looks even more magnificent than it is because it's so obvious in the backdrop of the blackness it sits on. 
What Paul has done in this passage is that he set a black background and he placed a diamond on it. When people see that diamond, they say, I must have it. And this is what Paul's trying to do with grace. He's showing us the blackness of our world, the tragedy of our sin, the hopelessness of our condition. And on that background, he has placed a diamond. And the truth is this. If we never understand the mess we've created, we'll never crave the grace he offers. If we never understand the mess of our own hearts, we'll never crave the grace he offers. But the moment we see the blackness of this world and of our hearts, we'll look to grace and we'll say, I've got to have it because it's my only hope. This is what Paul's trying to do. He's painting this black backdrop and he's putting grace on it and it sparkles and it shines and it reminds us of how glorious it actually is. Grace is the crown jewel of the gospel. It's the diamond on the black background. When we accept his sacrifice, when we receive his grace by faith, like my friend Chatty, we too can praise God and genuinely say, he drew me out of the deepest sea. He calmed me in the midst of chaos. He saved me from the blackness of my own sin. He has rescued me and given me hope, not just for this life, but to enjoy his presence forever. I just want to finish this morning with a question. And the question is, have you accepted the grace of God through Jesus Christ at the cross? Because none of us are perfect. All of us fall short. But when we accept that grace, we are forgiven We are declared to be righteous, holy, in the sight of God. And that is our position before him, and that's a wonderful thing. If you haven't received Jesus, there's no better time than today to put your trust and faith in him to have that hope for eternal life. Thanks for listening to our message this week. If it stirred your heart and you would like to talk to someone more about it or pray with someone, please get in touch with us at info at follow.church and one of our pastoral team will get back to you as soon as possible. If you'd like more information about Follow and our various ministries, including weekly service times and location, please check out our website, www.follow.church. Thanks again for joining us. God bless.